Hi, before we start today's episode, I wanted to tell you about a podcast that I think you'll really enjoy. Some of you may well already listen, but if not, it's called Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio, and it's the number one most downloaded food podcast in America. Milk Street Radio travels the world to learn anything and everything that sparks their curiosity about food. So you'll hear stories about the world's strangest Michelin-starred meal, how some vineyards are renting falcons to protect their crops. You'll hear from some of your favorite food personalities, like the one and only Nigella Lawson. And you'll also learn how to make the perfect cup of coffee with YouTube star James Hoffman. There's a really great episode about food failures, which documents the time Gerber made baby food for adults. Another episode features TikTok forager Alexis Nicole Nelson, who explains why she traveled across state lines to make seaweed panna cotta. Plus, Christopher Kimball and Sarah Moulton speak with listeners and answer their questions about ingredients, techniques, and culinary mysteries. Like, why roasting a leg of lamb made one cooler's oven explode? (laughs) Ever wondered why your bread won't rise or your souffle falls flat? Well, Chris and Sarah have the answers. You'll also hear from a rotating cast of contributors. It's great. Take a listen at 177milkstreet.com slash radio. Or just search your podcast app for Milk Street Radio. Hi, I'm Margie Nomura and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the Desert Island. The question is, what would you choose as your last meal? Hi, I hope you're all really well. So I think this is only the second time ever that we've recorded Desert Island Dishes with a duo. The first time being several years ago now when I recorded with the Hairy Bikers and I'll never forget that just as I pressed record, they started recycling several skips worth of bottles just outside the window, which is always ideal when you're recording a podcast. It was so stressful. So this was really fun to interview another pair and there wasn't a bottle bank in sight. The Bosch boys have achieved so much and I think there are lots of good nuggets in this one. I definitely found it really inspiring and I think it's pushed me to take action to make some stuff happen. I think from hearing successful people and them sharing the fact that things just don't happen, you have to have a plan, you have to make goals and then you have to set your mind on something. And I think it's really helpful to be reminded of that. They've got a brand new book out this week, which is very exciting. And I'm going to link all the details in the show notes. They've also just moved into a brand new, amazing studio. So lots of really exciting things are happening in the world of Bosch. And all that's left to say is thank you so much for listening. I honestly, I can't believe how many of you are each week. It just, it makes me so happy. Thank you. Here is today's episode. My guests today are Henry Firth and Ian Theesby, broadcasters, Sunday Times bestsellers and vegan chefs extraordinaire. You may know them by their other name, Bosch, the vegan food empire they've been growing for the last seven years. From what began as a successful YouTube channel, these boys from Sheffield have now gone on to host their own ITV show, Living on the Veg, and now have more than a million followers across their social media. 
They offer fans a refreshing, no-fuss approach to veganism and plant-based living. Their debut cookbook has become one of the UK's all-time bestsellers, described as a powerful duo famed for their easy-to-follow recipe videos. Their most popular recipe video was viewed over 50 million times, and their videos get over 25 million views a month. They've been called everything from the Bosch Boys, the Bosch Brothers, but regardless of all of that, it's clear they are the vegan superstars who have tapped into the culinary zeitgeist and have conquered the virtual world. Welcome, Henry and Ian. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> I was thinking that the, the, the success that you two have had must surely be all the sweeter because you've got to do it alongside your best friend. Are, <laughs> are you the type of people to look back and reflect on what you've achieved? Are we best friends? Yeah, well, I reckon by virtue of the fact that we spend all the time together, probably. Yeah. Okay, right. Uh, yeah, I reckon. I think it's good to sh to have the opportunity to share with someone mm. um, because sometimes we get the opportunity to have like little podium moments together. Yeah. And when you're like on the podium with someone together, um, it, you know, it doesn't feel awkward talking about the thing that you've just done. But say if you're just like chatting with one of your other mates, uh, it might feel boastful, and it might you might not feel um, as easy to talk about the stuff, mm. thing you've just done. That's exactly what I was thinking because it is hard to talk about yourself, but mm. you can kind of frame it as being proud of the other one. <laughs> and you've also said that you hardly ever argue, which is amazing for a friendship. You're, Henry, you're nodding along yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, we've had our moments. Yeah. Um, I think for everybody, COVID and lockdown was a hard time. We've lived together and worked together for years, almost decades. We don't anymore. And we stopped living together in lockdown that okay. was that was when it was enough right so we'd all spent two years in our houses and we'd been living and working in our house with a few other people and that was enough but i think as a kind of working duo but also as friends we've uh, we've had those arguments we've realized that stuff's nonsense and we've got past them we don't really tend to argue anymore yeah it's true the the biggest argument was about a vegan sausage oh <laughs> what uh, was the argument uh, and about how long to microwave it for to get the right level of mushiness <laughs> You don't have to do that anymore because you can buy vegan mints in the shops. But um, five years ago, you couldn't. So. Yeah. And what is it about your friendship, but also your relationship as business partners that work so well? Are you very similar or do you complement each other? I would say we're complementary. So um, we're both co-CEOs of the business. Yeah. We now have like a good amount of people working in Bosch. Um, so we both take different parts within that business. Um, we tend to talk to each other about every big decision that we make, which is super helpful. Um, but we can also divide and conquer at the same time. So, uh, yeah, I would say we're complementary. Yeah. yeah. Well, so how many are there working for Bosch now? I think we've just hit 20. Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, a lot of people. That, yeah, that's happened in the last sort of 18 months or so. Uh, yeah, it's we've got a great team. There, and it's really nice because we, Henry and I set up Bosch because we, we very much want to put more plants on people's plates. We don't want to turn the whole world vegan, but what we do want them to do is eat more plants. And everybody who's on the journey with us, whether they're vegan, vegetarian, or um, eat anything, um, they're all completely aligned on the, on the mission too. So it's really, really good. When it comes to cooking, you've said that Ian is methodical and thinks things through with great precision, whereas Henry is always thinking, how can I make the process quicker and more efficient? And Henry, I have heard that you are the messy one. 
Yeah, that's probably about right. Yeah, Ian's very, but he has like everything mise en place in the little plates all perfect. And I just tend to like chop as I go and chuck stuff straight in the bin. Does that drive you mad, Ian? Uh, well, listen, like I say, we, we, we've kind of um, had our differences before, but now it's just recognising that that's the way that we each do it. And we both end up getting the good result, which is the tasty food. So that's yeah. good. You both grew up in Sheffield and have been friends since the age of 11. So we're going to talk about the first Desert Island dish and hear from you both. So the first Desert Island dish is a dish that most reminds you of your childhood. So uh, it was my mum, right? She used to make a veggie lasagna. Mm. And this is funny, right? Because I would have been, what, I don't know, five, six, eight years old. And already she was feeding me veggie lasagna, maybe like planting things in my brain. Mm. Obviously it had cheese in it because vegan cheese didn't exist back then. Um, But yeah, I just remember she had this very home-cooked approach, which maybe a little bit like mine was just chucking everything in, (laughs) not really spending too much time thinking about flavour or preparation and just cobbling together a lasagna to feed the family. And whilst I do take a little bit more time over flavour than maybe she did, um, I've definitely adopted that like approach to speedy cooking Mm. and I definitely love a a veggie lasagna nowadays. That's so cool that yeah. she was making that all the way back then. All the way back then. Well, it's, she's a hippie. She's an old hippie. Okay. So that's her vibe. So she's not surprised by what you're doing now? Uh, I don't think she necessarily agrees. Her and my dad, they both eat me, so um, they're not, like, that way inclined. Okay. But they're definitely a little bit in that hippie realm. And so, Ian, moving on to you, what's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood? Um, my grandmother's roast dinner. Mm. So uh, my grandfather was a farmer. My grandmother was a farmer's wife. And uh, as he would be plowing the fields, to he was an arable farmer but had a few animals. Mm. Um, she, on a Sunday, would be taking those vegetables that he had been growing and uh, taking the piece of meat from the local butcher and just spending a long time just making the best roast dinner I've ever had and will ever have. You know, it's just the perfect roast potatoes. It's perfectly cooked um, vegetables. And then at the time, it perfectly cooked beef as well because that's what that was what we were eating back then. Mm. But delicious. You guys have been likened to both Jamie Oliver and also Anton Deck. But I wondered, (laughs) with the Jamie reference, did you grow up watching cooking shows? Yes. uh, Jamie Oliver was very much there in our youth. And it was definitely one of the first cookbooks that I bought would have been his. I remember him in that like weird little London flat. Mm. I feel like he didn't. Oh, yeah, the come... spiral staircase spiral or a fireman's pole. Oh, was it a fireman's pole? Or am I <laughs> just imagining? It was a spiral staircase. Yeah, but it felt like a fireman's yeah, pole. Yeah, it did. Uh, so I remember that show. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's funny that we got likened to him and also Anton Deck, because I don't know how much we're like Anton Deck. There's just two of us and we're both from the north. Yeah, I think um, that's literally as yeah. far as it like goes. Dwarf. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like growing up, I didn't really watch many cooking shows apart from The Naked Chef. And I think the reason why all of us at that age had watched The Naked Chef is because. It was he was part of the Britpop era, mm. and you know Britpop was you pick up any magazine, any paper, and you're reading about Blur and Oasis and uh, all of the other bands that came out at that time, and he fit nice and neatly into that. Mm. So I think he was just a, a massive part of British culture and back in the nineties, of which we were harvesting a lot of. Mm. I guess his shows 
for the first time for me certainly it just made cooking seem so simple mm. like it was it was a step away from the traditional yeah. tv chefs that we've been used to seeing it seemed doable he, he made it cool as yeah. well i mean yeah. like before that you'd see lots of cooking shows but it probably be a bit more formulaic i mean it would be it would be for mums and dads cooking yeah. shows before that were for mums and dads whereas jamie oliver was this cool like 20 something year old yeah. guy yeah. bopping around on a moped yeah. which is more relevant to younger people yeah exactly mm. i mean yeah he was he was cool he had like you know he had the cool hair cut the cool clothes and it was like really sort of choppy camera which is quite vloggy actually if you think about it yeah. back in the day 25 years ago yeah. when they were making that show they were way ahead of the time so yeah i think i read that there was no desire that either of you would end up working in the world of food so i'm interested to talk about the second desert island dish and that's the first dish that you learned to cook it's spaghetti bolognese mm. actually for me uh, my dad was a teacher my mum was a nurse we grew up in sheffield and both me and my sister would go to school as you do and um my parents were busy people and it kept like when I got to the age of around about 12 it became it, my mum and dad were like right we want you to start cooking the dinner on a Monday night uh, because it just m makes everything easier if you just learn how to cook that dinner and do it so the dinner that I learned to cook was spaghetti bolognese and I like to think that I perfected it because I cooked <laughs> it every Monday for around about five years um, but yeah spaghetti bolognese that was the first dish I truly learned to cook that's amazing. And so you were in charge of that. Yeah, that was that was me on a Monday. Yeah. That was me on a Monday. And did that give you a sense of pride? Like, were you happy to do that? Yeah, I think so, actually. Because, you, you know, you, you basically start playing around with flavours. It's like take one or two bay leaves, throw it in, take some of these random spices that we've got, throw them in, see how they go. How much tomato puree does it need? Definitely a full tube. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and just, yeah, just basically just uh, nail sp spaghetti bolognese. And I think my parents actually got quite impressed with yeah. that bolognese uh, as, as the years wore on. So it's yeah. good. That worked out very well for them. In, well, yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and Henry, what about you? I mean, for me, it was absolutely a curry. And so, uh, again, like we grew up with my mum cooking pretty much all our meals, apart from Christmas dinner. Um, so that meant because we lived in Sheffield, we'd had lots of Pakistani people living around us. We'd often have Pakistani food, Indian food. Uh, one of my best friends when I was a kid was Sachin, uh, Indian guy. And so we just had a lot of Pakistani and Indian food. And yeah, the first dish I learned to cook was a chicken curry. Mm. I think I actually, I taught myself rather than my mum teaching it me. Okay. Um, and it was from a like a Madder Jaffrey cookbook. I don't remember which one. She's a legend. Um, but yeah, it would have been um, the first time I experienced really, you know, caramelizing onions and spending 20 minutes to 25 minutes getting those onions perfect. Uh, the first time I really started to play around with flavour um, and it was a lovely brown rich chicken curry with some kind of rice concoction that also would have some spices and some flavours in it. I didn't really have a name for it back then, <laughs> but maybe it was like a home-style Indian curry. Well, so how old were you when you were doing that? I, I'm going to guess around 11, 12, something mm. like that. Yeah, so you both started pretty young. Yeah, I don't know if yeah. it was great. Yeah. I'm not sure if like we'd love it now, but no. I think it was all right for an 11 or 12-year-old. I think if you're following one of her recipes, you yeah. can't go too far wrong. So let's go back to the days before Bosch. Ian, you worked in fashion retail after leaving university. And Henry, you were a part-time DJ who coded websites and set up your own tech company when Ian then became your first employee. So several questions off the back of that. Henry, what was your tech company? Ah, uh, yes. Uh, it was called PingTune. Mm -hmm. it, was a, it was a mobile messaging app. We had a team of people and we built this really cool way to message people that involved videos 
music. You could send all this stuff that you couldn't do on the other platforms back then, like WhatsApp. Uh, unfortunately, now you can. And so we didn't really like catch fire with that company. But it was a great idea. It was a great idea. It was a great learning experience. And um, I think we actually worked together on that as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, We took a lot of learnings from that into Bosch and Mm. and how to build a company uh, sustainably. Okay. So what do you think were the biggest things that you learned from that? Uh, You've got to do something with purpose and that you believe in. Uh, It's not enough to just build something that might work you really purpose will take you so far and it was actually that was where the idea for Bosch came from is like we believed in wanting to stop climate change uh <laughs> we found out that plant-based food was a great way to reduce your personal carbon footprint and that gave us this like purpose this reason to build something mm. rather than having something that doesn't have that emotional investment and as a founder you need that emotional investment to be able to get up every morning and just keep doing what you do because it's a hard job yeah so had you always wanted to be entrepreneurs i wouldn't mm. say always wanted to be entrepreneurs i'd say um I've spent my life building things Mm. and building things that people want to engage with. That's Mm. been my entire 20-something year career. It's been building things for people. And Ian, I wondered about that. Obviously, now you're in a partnership, but how was it going from working for Henry to with Henry? Uh, Well, I mean, in Ping Chun, Henry was definitely the CEO, definitely had the vision for the company. And uh, yeah, it's the first time that I'd actually worked properly in kind of a technical background. So I learned a lot there. So I really mm-hmm. appreciated the opportunity to go and work with him. But I think it, it felt as in like, Henry had the vision and was taking the company, but it didn't feel as if like there was a, a, a boss relationship, you know? Yeah. Um, I think more times than not, I would kind of be there to be the, like the, the support when some big decisions were made or whatever. So yeah, yeah it was... So- it was a really great learning curve for me. Yeah. And it felt like a natural transition to them when you became co-founders. Yeah, I think so. I think it's it's valuable working with people that you trust. And yes, you may understand where the difficult points are with that person or with each other. But also, as long as you know that and you can get past that, that trust is incredibly valuable. Mm. Um, and that's the hardest thing in building a business or building something you believe in mm. is is the people that you're going to work with. Mm. Yeah. That's why there are so many like husband and wife teams and also siblings or yeah, you see a, fa- a person becoming very famous, they get their siblings on their team, don't they? Yeah, because you can trust them. Yeah. yeah, it's really important. Mm. On to the third desert island dish. What is the best dish you've ever eaten? So I had to think really hard about this. <laughs> Obviously, we've eaten plant-based for seven years. So that means no meat, no fish, no eggs, no dairy. So even though you've got this... This multitude of options now, wherever you go, it still isn't as good as it could be in the world. So when you go to a fine dining restaurant, you're going to get one experience or or one dish. And so honestly, I cook better food than I eat out. So I would say that the best dish I've ever eaten was in an Airbnb with my partner. She really wanted steak and pepper sauce. And I cooked her Dauphinoise potatoes, incredibly creamy, like perfectly crispy top. I cooked this plant-based steak, which is absolutely amazing. And it's called Juicy Marbles. Mm. This is a 3D printed steak, comes from Israel. And it's so realistic. The flavor is amazing. The cook is amazing. And it was just, you know, perfectly seared. And then a lovely creamy pepper sauce. Mm. And it was probably the first time I'd had a meal like that since going vegan. Mm. Uh, So I would say that was the finest dish I ever ate. 
I love that you've chosen a dish that you made yourself. I back myself. Yeah, it's a solid. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> no, this is the kind of confidence I need to channel. <laughs> Ian, what what are you going to go for? Well, um, since we're setting up Bosch, we've been lucky enough to go to an awful lot of nice restaurants. We've um, we went for dinner with like Ottolenghi at his restaurant once, which was very cool. Um, and we we were actually we we were in Norway at the beginning of this, or actually a couple of months ago, and we went to like an incredible restaurant. It was amazing. We got taken to this restaurant for a full tasting menu by um, like Norway's biggest plant-based inf- influencer, Anna Lena. Mm-hmm. And uh, she she's a big deal in Norway. So that was really, really fun. But to be honest, as much as I appreciate the artistry that goes with this kind of like really posh cuisine, I'm a bit more basic. Okay. Right? <laughs> so the uh, the dish that I remember like, like worrying me the most was when we, me and my parents were in Florida. We were in a small town called Apalachicola, and we had basically not eaten any breakfast, and we had like done an activity of which I can't remember in the morning. But we were all really hungry, and we were just driving down the freeway, pulled off to this little town called Apalachicola, and um, yeah, found this burger joint. Right, and it's not even like a restaurant; it's just like a hut with tables outside and we ordered cheeseburger, fries and a Coke and it was by far and away the best meal I've ever eaten in my life. One, because I was absolutely ravenously hungry and two, because it was as good as American burger can be. Mm. I just remember that and thinking, wow, it can never get any better than this. It's so interesting, isn't it? How, as you say, you can eat at the most expensive, amazing restaurants and very rarely do those dishes get chosen for this particular desert island dish. Exactly. I think it's it's, it's also just like the situation Mm. and the memory the food has conjured up. And you can't beat basic. So everything changed in 2015 when, Ian, one January, you decided to go vegan as part of a health kick. Mm. And I think the story goes that you were literally astounded at how quickly you felt great. Yeah, that's right. So end of 2014, I basically looked in the mirror um, and I had my boxers on. I thought, God, I put on a little bit of weight here and uh, I'm not looking the best version of myself. So I thought, right, for 2015, need to kick off the year in the right way. So I'm going to give up alcohol for three months to sort of clear my head a bit. And I'm also going to try vegetarianism for a month to see how that goes. And one month into the vegetarianism, I was like feeling quite good. Um, And then obviously, like when you're doing the vegetarian thing, you're kind of like reading a bit about it and then you discover this word vegan. Mm. And I thought, oh, maybe I'll give this vegan thing a whirl. And then, so tried that for like, a month or so. And over the course of the month of being vegan, like loads of weight dropped off, skin cleared up, hair got thicker, um, woke woke up fresher in the morning, went to bed and and slept really easy. There was all of these wonderful things that um, that were coming that I didn't know would come. Uh, and at some point during that month journey, I ended up watching a, a documentary called Cowspiracy. Mm. And I thought that this documentary is the thing that will absolutely, like, like excite Henry. So I was like, mate, you need to watch this documentary. Uh, and we did, didn't we? We watched it at the old flat on a massive screen. Yeah, um, it was uh, it was an emotional moment, I remember. And But the key <laughs> message that uh, that came out in the way that they edited that film is if you call yourself an environmentalist, then by rights, you probably should be vegan because mm. ultimately it's just so much better for the planet. And that was a message that now is understood and people make their own decisions about, you know, what they eat, thinking about what they want, but also about the planet. 
But seven years ago, that was new information. That was not known. It was not understood by doctors, by politicians, uh, even by scientists back then. So, um, yeah, my, my jaw hit the floor. And I went from thinking Ian was silly with his vegetarian, <laughs> vegan fad to then thinking, this is probably how I'm going to spend the rest of my life. <laughs> and maybe we should build a cooking channel because yeah. there's not enough information out there about yeah. how to cook this way. And so... After watching Cowspiracy, you literally, I think, went vegan overnight. Did you know prior to watching it that that is probably what was going to happen? Like, was it no. a big moment in terms of the before and after? Yeah, it was a shock. And I, I just remember my jaw dropped. And it wasn't just the environmental message, actually. There were two parts to the realisation for me. The first one was um, that we can make a big difference to the planet by eating less meat or eating no meat. But the second part was that climate change is also, uh, you know, a social justice issue because it's the poorest people in the world that are going to get hit hardest by climate change. And those two things really resonated with, with me. And that kind of injustice really wound me up. And that was probably the core driver that made me think I want to be part of the change mm. uh, rather than uh, <laughs> rather than ignoring the issues. Yeah. I guess when you have a bigger purpose like that, it makes it easier to to do it overnight because people say it is obviously a big lifestyle change and to to make it immediately is difficult but I guess once you're thinking bigger picture it becomes easier absolutely you've got to get leverage on yourself and that happened it wasn't even like I tried to it just happened from watching that movie and um and that definitely helped but as Ian says I then also experienced a load of benefits from um from better sleep to just generally energy you cured your hay fever Yes, although I've got a bit of hay fever now. It is really bad. It's weird. I had about, I would say I had about five years where I didn't really have hay fever and now it seems to be like finding its way back in. Yeah. But it is better than it used to be. So it was this lifestyle change, obviously, that led you to launch Bosch soon after. Was that a real light bulb moment? Because I completely understand that a lifestyle change and the feelings of, you know, benefiting from something like that. But did you feel in terms of the business that you'd really tapped into something that not enough people were talking about. Yeah, definitely. We both um, went our own separate ways for a bit. So Ian was working on a vegan cafe uh, in Sheffield. That was what he was going to build. And I was working on a vegan ready meal delivery company concept But you never thought at that point of doing it together? Well, that... No, mm. because Ian had gone back home and okay. I was, I, I, he was in Sheffield, I was in London and we were both just separate. But I realised there was a there was this new vein of video online where it was very hands-focused. There was this channel called Tasty. Yeah. There was no vegan Tasty. So I had this loose idea that we could build a vegan version of Tasty. And upon realising that, I realised I needed Ian's help with that. So I called Ian up and I was like, dude, I know you're trying to build a vegan cafe. <laughs> Let's build a vegan cafe for the world. See what I did there? Good salesman. Um, Yeah, I gave him the pitch and uh, really like pitched my little heart out. And Ian was like, "Uh, no, (laughs) which I was really annoyed about. Initially, yeah, because I was already back in Sheffield. I'd already like found someone that I was like going to do the cafe with. But then after maybe uh, like a week or 10 days of a couple of calls from Henry, I was like, do you know what? Right, like... Let's go and give this a whirl. Let's let's do it for six months. And if, if it works, absolutely wild and fantastic but if it doesn't then I'll just come back to Sheffield and pick up where I left off yeah, I had to buy his ticket yeah. I had to buy his ticket as well which was uh, that's true. Yeah. Ian <laughs> you drive a hard bargain yeah exactly well that's it but like yeah it, it inevitably it turned out to be a, a really good decision the realisation was we both love to cook 
we both have this newfound understanding that plant-based food, vegan food is great for the planet, which most people still don't know, mm. but it's backed by science. This is a place I believe we can make a difference and we can kind of fill a gap. There is a, there's not enough vegan recipes and yet we love to make recipes, we love to cook. So let's start making recipes. We'll build an audience on this new video platform on Facebook and then we'll work out what happens after that. Something will happen. But all the signs were pointing to the fact that this was the right place for us to be. Mm. Um, and this wasn't just something that we cared about passionately, but it was also something the world was going to wake up to. Mm. And we could kind of see that from day one. Yeah. So in those early days when you first started, what did success look like for Bosch? What, what, what could have happened that you would have thought, oh, we've made it? So we wrote down four things okay. on a, a, a manifesto. The yeah. document is still in our Google Docs it's called the Bosch Manifesto. Uh, one of them was write a best-selling cookbook. The second one was uh, have the first vegan TV show. The third one was uh, have a range of food products in supermarket. And the fourth one was build the lar largest plant-based vegan video cooking channel. They were the four things we wrote on the paper. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Is that, I think that's what they call manifesting. <laughs> it was a version of manifesting, yes, yeah. except we then, you know, we, we did the work to make them happen. Yeah. We didn't just hope for it. Um, I'm not saying that manifesting, you don't do the work, but yeah. I'm not that big into manifesting. I don't know that much about it. Yeah. But it was definitely goal setting, and yeah. then we wanted to do it in two years. It took five, oh. but that was okay. It right. still happened. Yeah, we I did think. it, which is good. Um, so yeah, I think like we worked really hard at it. But it, having that structure and having those kind of those things, those kind of like the guiding principles and the guiding um, destination of where you actually want to get to is really really helpful. Yeah. So if anybody is thinking about like setting up a business, like whatever it may be, having those definite goals to begin with is really key and yeah. really important. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. Okay, we're going to pause there and talk about the fourth desert island dish. What is your favorite sandwich? Ooh, okay. So do you know what? Occasionally, I'm just, I'll be at home on a Saturday and I'll just be like, oh, I could just do it some lunch and nothing, nothing will cut it apart from a sandwich. Yeah. Right, it's like, okay. And I'll, I'll get like a real bee in my bonnet about I need this one specific sandwich and Sarah's okay. like, oh, she, he's on it again. He wants those that, that ridiculous sandwich. So I'll have to like hot step down to the supermarket, grab some king oyster mushrooms, mm. grab some uh, really good quality medium-sized tomatoes, baby gem lettuce and good quality bread. Come back home and uh, basically make an MLT. So it's like a BLT, but a mushroom, lettuce and tomato. And you prep that king oyster mushroom by pulling the stem, by popping it on a baking tray, seasoning it with chicken seasoning, because chicken seasoning is in fact vegan because it's just a selection of spices. Salt, pepper, olive oil, roast it for 15 minutes, and then whack it inside your toasted sandwich with all the bits and bobs, some vegan mayonnaise, some uh, Dijon mustard, and yeah, you just tuck into that with a packet of crisps and it's basically perfect. Yeah, that sounds incredible. Yeah, it's a great sandwich. <laughs> what kind of bread are we talking? Um, toasted ciabatta, but like really, really good sort of rustic ciabatta. The sort of stuff that like just like looks really, really thin at one end, really, really fat at the other. Like it's just been slapped on um, a baking tray by a big like Italian chef. <laughs> that sort of thing. But I can see why you're obsessed with that sandwich. That yeah, sounds amazing. So I need to recreate that. Mm. And Henry, what about you? So I would go for something a bit more basic. And uh, th maybe this also harks back to my childhood. But you know those toasty makers that mm. are about 15 quid? Yes. I think they're made by Breville. Mm -hmm. And you just kind of squish the toasty shut and you get this 
weird thing with molded edges, almost like a vacuum pack machine <laughs> so for your for your sandwich. Yeah, that's such a vivid memory. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, and you butter the outside, right? So that you get that, that lovely kind of buttery um, fried toast effect. So I would go for the toasty made in one of those. Mm. And what we're going to have is we're going to have vegan cheddar. Obviously, I don't eat cheese, so vegan cheddar. But there are some good vegan cheddars out there if you go hunting. I like to go for pickle, but the pickle that I like to go for is a brinjal pickle. So it's an aubergine pickle. Mm. Um, so you have this cheddar, which is kind of mature. You have this aubergine pickle, maybe a little bit of spring onion, and that is it. And that, it makes the whole house smell like curry because it's got these kind of Indian-style spices. Um, you've got a tang of that pickle. You've got the naughty runniness of the cheddar and, and the tang of the cheddar. And obviously then the kind of crunchy and fluffy toasty, and it just feels naughty. That sounds really good. It's fun. <laughs> it's a goodie. When you led into that, you kind of, I felt like you under you underplayed that. I was expecting yeah. just something very bog standard. It's basic, but, but sometimes amazing. basic is good, right? Mm. As, yeah. as we said earlier, um, you know, sometimes you need simplicity rather than complexity. Yeah. The Have you tried a Nutella sandwich in one of those machines? Oh, no, a Nutella toasty, really? Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. They're really good. Yeah, I bet that does sound good. <laughs> So you launched your first video in June 2016 and it got 3.5 million views in the first week alone. That must have felt incredibly exciting. Yes, yes, it was. It was really exciting um, because essentially what we did was rather than just make the videos and throw them on social media and hope for the best, yeah. we kind of had developed the idea of what we wanted Bosch to be and the reason for Bosch to exist. And um, before we posted any videos, we reached out to quite a few um, like-minded organizations, like-minded like PETA, for mm -hmm. instance, uh, Animals Equality, uh, Mercy for Animals. And we essentially said, listen, we, um, we, we've kind of had this epiphany that the, the planet needs to eat more plants um, for the benefit of their own health, for the benefit of the planet itself and for animals. And we wanna show them that cooking vegan food can be really fun and also really tasty. We're gonna make a bunch of videos. When we put them on social media, would you please share them on your on your bigger social media pages? And they said, yeah, of course, we're mission aligned. Like uh, we're one of the same. This is great, absolutely. So we posted the videos out there. Obviously the videos looked good and the recipes were good. And um, with a little bit of sort of viral fire from a few of the places, they just really went ballistic. And as you say, three and a half million views in the first couple of weeks of the first video, which was healthy sushi cake, was was really good. I mean, like seeing those numbers tick, 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 up, up, up was amazing. And um, over the course of the next six weeks, the Facebook page got bigger and bigger and bigger. And we hit 100,000 likes in the first six weeks. So um, from then on in, we kind of knew yeah, that we've got something here. So let's let's kick on and, and do more. I mean, first of all, that's very smart. <laughs> and second of all, within the first six weeks, that's unbelievable. Yeah. So that must have felt almost like rocket fuel that you were onto something. And did you feel very excited about what the future held? Yeah, it was exhilarating. And we knew that we were building something that mattered. We knew that we were trying to... Um, create food that people would love. So there was the healthy sushi cake. Shortly after there was the meze cake. I think we made a chocolate brownie lasagna. Mm -hmm. every, making everything a cake or a lasagna. <laughs> we made a watermelon Jager bomb. That got like 50 million views. Wait, you um, made a brownie lasagna? Uh, yeah, chocolate yeah. brownie lasagna. Yeah, which is really just like layers of things. 
it was all quite rough and tumble in the early days. <laughs> but people loved seeing this, these kind of crazy creations. Um, but what they also appreciated was the fact that it was plant-based and vegan, but without being preachy yeah. and judgy and showcasing the fact that this food could be fun too. Um, so yeah, it was super exhilarating. And uh, and those, as Ian said before, those trophy moments, those exhilarating moments still continue to this day. You just have kind of different shaped moments as things continue. Yeah. So in 2018, your first cookbook came out and became the first vegan cookbook to rise to number one in the Sunday Times bestseller chart. Mm. You know how sometimes people say that when you're on the right path, things slot into place and just good things keep happening. Was it all as it seems from the outside that it was just hard work, obviously, but plain sailing in terms of success mm. after success? Or were there any moments where it was really hard and maybe even you thought you know what did you want to continue there are moments like that all the way through so um if people tell you you're amazing you should disregard what they say if they tell you you're awful you should disregard what they say um because neither of them are particularly helpful we just kind of work hard <laughs> and actually i remember meeting gordon ramsay and that was one of his bits of advice is just keep working hard and that's what we do so we, we go in we work hard we do the things sometimes people say we're amazing sometimes it's all flavor of the month sometimes it isn't doesn't matter like we're building we're hustling you just continue and I think um, we have had those moments where everything feels amazing. We've also had those moments where everything felt difficult. And um, the key thing is we've got to keep our business growing mm. and keep it sustainable. Now we've got a team, make sure the team is productive, know what they're doing, doing the right things. But most importantly, make sure that we're still connecting with the people who buy our books and watch our videos, making food that they love, because that's what this whole business is based on. Mm. Um, so there've been moments all the way along, but we try not to pay too much heed to them. Mm. Yeah, I think that's very good advice. If you're going to dwell on the negative stuff, you also can't dwell on the positive stuff. Yeah. Like just carry on as you were, mm. which is easier said than done. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think uh, like with regard to the success of that first book, though, mm. um, I think the main reason why that book um, sold really well to begin with and got yeah. to number one is because we set up Bosch um, and we put a new video out every single day, right? So we, we basically, we were paying money out of our own pocket to make content for people. And every single piece of content created, like it was really valuable to people because it was opening their eyes about how they could potentially eat vegan food, even a little bit in their diet. So we made maybe, you know, 100 or 150, maybe even 200 videos before we asked people on our social media, would you be interested in potentially maybe buying a book? So I think that like we built up a lot of trust with our audience before we ever asked them to actually buy anything from us. Yeah. And the thing that we asked them to buy from us was still exceptionally valuable to them because it was essentially a book full of really tasty vegan recipes that they could cook at home. So um, so I think that that's like one of the reasons why that book did well because we didn't ask for anything until we'd given loads. Yeah, yeah, that's very good advice. Let's talk about the fifth desert island dish and that's the dish you eat the most often. This is gonna sound uh, a bit preachy, but it is a green juice. Green Ooh. juice every morning is the way to go. Okay, what's it's, your recipe? It's such a good way to get greens. I mean, it varies. Um, so my recipe would always involve some kale, spinach, maybe chard, if you can get some chard in there. Also, if you want to really turbocharge it, you get that super greens powder. Chuck some of that in there. So you are just loading that full of greens. Green means magnesium. That is something your body needs for creating energy, also repairing, also growing. I would then add some banana just because it tastes good. Yeah. A little bit of oat milk, a little bit of water. Uh, if you fancy putting a little bit of fancy mushroom powder in there, because everyone's into mushrooms right now, 
go ahead, sometimes I will, uh, and blend that up. That is my recipe. And I try and try and start every day with that. I'd also add to that, the, the greens powder that you can buy in any Whole Foods or any supermarket, it's going to be a lot cheaper. I think you'll get 90 to 95% of the benefit from just a cheap greens powder okay. and just making your own smoothie. Ian, what is the dish you eat the most often? Um, okay, so I'm going to say it's a fridge-raid greens and grains, Ooh. right? So there's you can get these kind of like vacuum-packed, pre-cooked uh, packets of grains so it might be you know quinoa or it might be frique or it might be some lentils or whatever you just get those and you whack them in a pan and then you just go to the fridge and you just pull out vegetables that you think are going to work well so you might have some mushrooms at the back of the fridge you might have some kale there as well um, and then you just finally slice that whack it in toss it through cook it up and then add some flavor be that harissa or a little bit of vegan pesto, or again, just some nutritional yeast, a bit of salt, a bit of pepper. And um, I, I could literally eat that every single night because every single night it's slightly different from the last, yeah. but it's always really, really healthy, great fiber, uh, nutritionally very, very well-rounded, and uh, super tasty as well. So yeah, yeah oh. fridge-raid greens and grains. There's nothing better than a fridge-raid. No, absolutely It's so not. satisfying yeah. as yeah. well, like making something out of nothing. Yeah, exactly. So since your first cookbook, you released, I think, a cookbook every year at least. And that was one of your early goals and you've done mm. it. What is it about the cookbooks that feels so important to you? I think that um, creating a cookbook is uh, its a tangible way that our audience can engage with us. Everything else was video until a couple of years ago. We now have products that people can buy in stores as well, um, but that's a whole different kettle of vegan fish. But the books are just a nice, physical, tangible way of us to communicate food and deliciousness to the audience. Mm. And and it's also a collection, right? It's um, people buying into a franchise, shall we say. So uh, it's a process we enjoy. It's a process we our, our audience love. I reckon our books are very good. As well, like without wanting to say, uh, like blur our own trumpets, we, we work with one of the best um, publishing houses in the world, HarperCollins. We work with one of the best photographers that you can really get access to. She's called Lizzie Mason. Um, the team that we have got around us when we're creating a cookbook is as good as it can be. So, and also another thing about our books is that every recipe has a photo mm. because it's so <laughs> bloody annoying when you have a recipe book and it doesn't have a photo. It's like a really nice thing to own and to feel and to see and to like flick through. Um, so yeah, we're very proud of the books. How long is the process of coming up with the idea for the book and then actually having it in your hands? Yeah, it's um, it's it, uh, six months is probably normal. Okay. Uh, we did about the first four or five, just the two of us. Mm. Um, maybe with a bit of help with some like contract chefs helping us cook things over the last few weeks as we were testing and refining. Now, obviously, we have a team which is great. So we've got a few more people involved in the process. We're starting to reduce it from six months to maybe more like three or four. That's yeah. amazing. But it's a long process yeah. and we test the recipes religiously. Yeah. So they'll be tested three, four, five times. Yeah. I know you've got a new one coming out. Do you feel as excited about this one and about them in general as you did about that very first one? Yes, this one, I would. I think I'm the most excited about yeah. this one. I think this is our best book yet. I don't think I will ever be as excited as the first one. Yeah. You know, we had never done a book before and we spent so long grafting over it. And then when it came, it was like, oh, that's amazing. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's still, it's a wonderful feeling when you get the book and you see it there and you print it and it's something you can be really proud of. And um, I do echo Henry's sentiment about the quality of the ne next book. I did genuinely think it is the best one that we've done in terms of recipe quality. Yeah, that's yeah. exciting. Yeah. 
Because it's like a difficult second album, isn't it? Especially yeah. when the first one was so successful. Yeah. Oh, like, there is an added, an added pressure, yeah. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the sixth Desert Island dish, and that's your go-to dinner party dish. Do you guys get to throw a lot of dinner parties? Um, to be honest with you, I don't think we do as many dinner parties as we should, right? The last time I hosted a dinner party is because when Sarah and I moved into our new place, uh, we had a few friends around. Henry and MJ came around and a few others came around. They came around on a Sunday afternoon and I made a Sunday roast. Um, and I think that Sunday roast is my favourite thing to cook because um, it, it's very easy to get Sunday roast wrong. And also, when you go to pubs as a vegan... Like, seldom do you find a really good Sunday roast. So to, to, to cook a Sunday roast yourself where you know it's going to be pretty tasty and everyone comes around and everyone's like, oh, this is all right, this, yeah. It's a, it, it kind of, um, it's good to see them eating the food and really enjoying it. And also showing them that vegan food is pretty good when you do it properly. Yeah. What would be the centerpiece of your vegan roast? Uh, there are numerous centerpieces, but that one, was it was a mixture of jackfruit and king oyster mushrooms. So essentially you're getting the jackfruit, you're draining it off, you are rinsing it, and then you're pulling it, and then you're basically pulling the king oyster mushrooms as well, and you're sort of tossing those two together, seasoning it again with a meat seasoning, because meat seasoning is just spices, um, drizzling olive oil, whacking it in the oven for like 25, 30 minutes. And what you've got is something that's holding flavour really well, and it's mimicking texture of regular meat really well too. Um, and yeah, it just it sits on a it sits on the plate perfectly, along mm. with all the rest of the bits and bobs. Amazing, <laughs> Henry. What are you serving? So I've been doing a fair few pizza parties. Ooh. There's a lot of kids going on uh, amongst our mates, and in fact, I have one of my own now. Although she's not been to a pizza party yet, um, <laughs> so we better do one of those for her soon. Uh, we have an outdoor pizza oven. Great fun. Mm. And when you've got an oven that can get to, you know, 400 or 500 degrees C, you can make those proper, fluffy, doughy, beautiful Neapolitan-style pizzas. Uh, and you can do them in about 90 seconds. The cool thing about that is, for the, for the reason it makes a fun dinner party, or maybe more of a lunch party, actually, is... Um, you essentially spread out all of the ingredients. So you make your lovely marinara sauce, you make your dough, lots and lots of dough. You even like pre-prepare it into dough balls, keep that in the fridge. And then everything is just laid out in these little bowls. So you might have some jalapenos, you might have all the little olives and capers and all of that good stuff. Maybe some pepperoni, but it's going to be plant-based for us. Uh, and we've started to work out the, the right kind of plant-based cheeses that are going to work on a pizza as well. You have all of these little accoutrements laid out and then everybody can build their own pizzas. The kids love it. They get mm. kind of sticky hands. Um, but by and large, everyone has fun. Everyone remembers it. And everyone has a delicious pizza too. Mm. It's a great party. What's yeah. a brilliant vegan uh, dinner party pudding? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I like coffee and walnut cake, especially Ooh. when it's come out of a Bosch box. Ian. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Could, could, saw that opportunity. It went right in there. Um, I would go for a sticky toffee pudding, right? Mm, it's yeah. just a favourite, right? Proper British food pub classic with all of those spices in there. You might have some kind of custard there. You might have ice cream or, as my fiancé MJ likes, a bit of both. Mm -hmm. um, and not? obviously the drizzle of that toffee sauce over the top. Absolutely gorgeous. Um, but, frankly, you're going to need a nap after that. So yeah. it's probably more <laughs> yeah. of a winter thing rather than a summer thing. Yeah, awkward when you have friends around and you, yeah. you need to take a, a little power nap after pudding. We've got a cookbook corner on Desert Island Dishes, so I wondered what is your most treasured cookbook? I think I'm going to have to call out Bosch one. 
as yeah. the most treasured cookbook because that kind of sits on the shelf and it's, yeah, it's every time I see it, I'm like, ah, oh, yes. I it remember. means a lot to you. <laughs> yeah. Um, but like if I was going to pick somebody else's cookbook, I might go Ottolenghi's Simple because mm. that's a good cookbook. Like that's, uh, I mean, that's a really good cookbook. Um, you flick through it and there's a lot of stuff that you probably wouldn't cook, but this, you can take real great inspiration with some of the flavor profiles that he works with. Um, and again, it's a thing of beauty. It's the kind of thing that sits beautifully on a shelf or on a coffee table. Yeah, big up Ottolenghi for that. And one. I, I'm a cookbook aficionado. I've collected cookbooks since I was a young lad. Um, but I, I'm finding it hard to pick one from them um, because a lot of these people are now our, our peers or, or even competition, yeah. shall we say. Um, <laughs> but what I would say, I would honestly go for uh, How Not to Die by Dr. Michael Greger. Mm -hmm. And this is um, the actual How Not to Die book is not a cookbook per se, um, but it has an accompanying cookbook. And it's all about plant-based eating, like different kind of ailments that we might get when we're older, mm. things like diabetes, things like cancer, all of the science about all of them, um, and then a load of recipes and ways to eat that will help you to combat those things. Now, I'm 39, um, so, you know, I'm not at that age yet, but I think that I will keep that book as I get older and older and older, and it's a good reminder to all of us that we are what we eat, and um, the food that we choose to eat will make a difference to our longevity. Mm. Yeah, I need to check that out. Good book. We're good on... title as well, How Not to yeah, Die. That is it's hard not title. to buy that book. Well, yeah, it's true. It calls out to you. We're on to the final seventh desert island dish. What is the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island? I, I was thinking about this. This was really difficult yeah. um, because a desert island, I mean, it sounds like you're going away to some kind of isolation prison or something, which is grimy. So I've riffed with that as the vibe, Okay. which is rather than thinking about purely about the food that I want to eat, it's also about the experience I want to have. Mm. I'm assuming my family and friends aren't coming to the desert island or no. maybe just one or two you're of going, them. But maybe not. Ian. <laughs> you just made up. Oh, God, nightmare. <laughs> um, so it's going to have to be that incredible experience of a Christmas dinner, mm. like the full Christmas dinner. We would be um, starting with some nibble, little nibbly bits. There'd probably be um, some of those like cheap little snack selections where you have like, and this is kind of weird for Christmas dinner. I don't know why you would have samosas and spring rolls and dip them in chili sauce, but some, somehow you do yeah, at Christmas. It works. So we'd start with those little kind of nibbles, maybe some nachos and, and dips, but then we'd get into the actual Christmas dinner. We might have a plant-based prawn cocktail if we were going like proper out-out, mm -hmm. um, but then we'd be into, shall we say, the meat of it, which would absolutely be um, the Bosch Mushroom Wellington. It's world famous. Uh, it's what, you know, hundreds of thousands of people are cooking every Christmas, still to this day, which makes us very proud. Perfectly done potatoes, the Bosch Perfect gravy, which has got loads of red wine and absolutely loads of flavor. That full roast dinner and all the trimmings, bit of cranberry probably because it's Christmas. And then for dessert, I'm not big on Christmas pudding or Christmassy desserts, but what I love is Yule Log. Mm. So I'd go for the, uh, the the Bosch Yule Log. And we go through all of that, all the friends, all the family. Let's say there's probably 20 people. Mm. Good conversation, crackers and little party oh, hats. Yeah. And then you can send me off to an island with Ian and, uh, yeah. you know, we'll live out the rest of our lives uh, doing whatever we do on that island. I reckon we'll get really bored on that island. So I ended up building like a massive boat to sail off it. Yes. Find land or just again. swim. We're not or just, just swim off it. We could. We could just like swim. You get really, really jacked, like just swimming all yeah. the day. Like, uh, what's, like, uh, like Michael do. Phelps or something. But there's no point being jacked because it's just you and me on the island. No, that's true. But it's safe. Like there was something that came 
crawling out of the water to eat I us see. or whatever, then yeah, we can okay. fight it off. Yeah. Okay. So are you and you're joining him for the Christmas meal? Yeah. Yeah. I'll be yeah. there. I hope so. Anyway. Perfect. I didn't invite him. But <laughs> yeah. Of course you can. No, I'm joking. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much. Those were your desert island dishes. Thank you very much. So there we have it. Another delicious day of Desert Island Dishes. Don't forget that you can rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. And I think basically wherever you're listening. But subscribing to the show really does make a difference because it boosts the show in the charts and then it helps other people to find the show. And that's obviously amazing because it means I can keep bringing it to you each week. If you don't already, then do come and follow me on Instagram at Desert Island Dishes. And you can also sign up for our brand new newsletter, which is going to be launching very soon on the website. I'm really, really, really excited about this. So you don't want to miss out. Go to desertislanddishes.co. There are several different boxes on the website where you can pop your email address in there and be amongst one of the first to receive our shiny new newsletter. Thank you so much for listening and I will see you next week. Bye.